I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Another wonderful event. Um, we're delighted to welcome Brian Dillon to talk about his new book, Affinities, published by Fitzcarraldo feel like there's a nice affinity between Brian and the shop, if I may say, and it's always a pleasure when you come. I had to say it. Um, we're always very grateful when you do, so thank you so much. And thank you also to Jennifer Higgy, who's here to talk to Brian. Um, there's just one more thing to do, and that is to give our guests a really warm welcome. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you so much, Claire, and thank you very much to the London Re- Review of Books bookshop. It's clunky, isn't it? Um, and it's such an honour to be here on Brian's publication day, which I'm so thrilled about. But um, I have to say that I'm slightly annoyed with him because I was asked to do this talk with Brian, which I was very glad to do because I've known, we've known each other for a really long time. And then I sort of blithely got the book and read it. And it's a book of such genius and it's got so many ideas in it and it's got so many references in it and it goes in so many different directions. So I was a bit like, shit, what do I have? This, is ri- this, is a, this is a big job, this one. So um, anyway, so, <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, let's launch into it. Um, I'm sure you all know Brian, but just in case you don't, um, his books include Pose a Sentence, Essayism, The Great Expuls- Explosion, sorry, um, Objects in This Mirror, Essays, I Am Sitting in the Room, Sanctuary, Tormented Hope, Nine Hypochondriac Lives, um, In the Dark Room, um, and his writing has appeared in The Guardian, New York Times, London Review of Books, New Yorker, Freeze, etc., etc., etc. And um, I first met Brian when um, I invited him to write for Freeze magazine many years ago, more than 20 years ago, I think. It was like 2001 or something like yeah. that. And because I really loved his writing, obviously. And I, I thought, God, what were the things that he was writing way back then? So I had a look. And um, so I looked in the very dusty, it was like the Pompeii of Freeze looking into, you know, nine, two, the year 2000. And I saw that um, in 20, uh, 2001, he wrote a piece on the cultural history of zoos title Against Nature, because at that point, Huisman's was all the rage, um, The Pleasure of Aphorisms and Siebold's Writing. And I was thinking, this is so wonderful that these explorations of yours have been so eclectic and in a beautifully eccentric, and they make extraordinary connections across time and place. But um, so your new book, Affinities, which is here, and look at all the 
post-it notes, is a book of real wonder and curiosity and questions. And it's a trilogy of sorts which follows the book's essayism and supposed sentence. Um, Brian describes it as a collection of writings about art and artifacts that have hung around in my image repertoire, which is a Roland Barthes phrase, um, for years. And he examines from myriad angles why certain objects, disciplines, people or experiences from a photograph, an artist, a sentence, a novel, a telescope, um, an essay, a memory, a TV show, a piece of music or more, um, how they inhabit us. But not only that, how they interconnect and how one feeds the other. Um, but at every turn, and this is one of the things that I really love about Brian's writing, he he's, he's he never hectors you. He never takes a position that he is right and the rest of us are wrong and he has to try and convince us. As he said, the way things, images and ideas sidled up to each other seem to seduce one in another, sorry, seem to seduce one another in ways I could not or did not want to explain. And I think that's a very beautiful way of um, talking about the essay at its best. So um, I think Brian should read a, read an introduction now because I can witter on, but we need to hear his words. So we'll start with, I think, the first few pages of the prologue. Thank you so much, Jennifer. And be before I read, um, I'm just going to read the first couple of pages uh, of the book. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, a little over 20 years ago, um, you were kind enough uh, to be the first person who trusted me to write about art, oh. actually. And I think initially um, I proposed all kinds of other stuff, essays, articles about writers, about uh, zoos. What the hell was I thinking? Um, <laughs> about philosophy. Um, I think I wrote a piece about photo booths, stuff like that. Oh, right. And eventually you trusted me to write about contemporary art. Mm. About three years before that, I had written to Jennifer when I had, I'd finished my PhD and I'd realised um, that having wanted to be an academic since I was about 15, um, I had finished, the PhD had cured me of being the sort of person who had a PhD. Um, and I wrote to you, this would have been in the autumn of, I think, 99. And I wrote to you and I said, can I review this book? I think it was a book by Paul Virilio. And I was so naive and so clueless that I didn't even send you an example of my writing. And you were so kind to write back to this, this idiot, this, this <laughs> postgraduate loon, and say, maybe next time just send us a sample of your writing and, and we'll see how we go. So thank you. Thank you for bearing with me. Um, I'm going to read the first couple of pages. This just gives you a sort of sense of uh, where this book started and where I thought it might be headed, what I thought this thing might be. But it wasn't, for reasons that, that I'm sure we'll get to, it, it wasn't quite. There are 10 sections, chapters, uh, pieces that kind of punctuate the book, each of which is called Essay on Affinity. And so I'm giving you Essay on Affinity 1. I found myself frequently using the word affinity and wondered what I meant by it. An attraction, for sure, to certain objects, to certain works of art or literature, to fragments or details, moods or atmospheres inside of them to a sentence, for instance, or an essay, but just as easily to an impression diffusing in the mind that could not be traced back to source. A fascination with this or that artist, writer, musician, filmmaker, designer, with a body or a body of work. Fascination, already finding words with which affinity has affinities. Fascination as something like, but unlike, critical interest. 
which has its own excitements but remains too often at the level of knowledge, analysis, conclusions, at worst, the total boredom of having opinions. But also the way things, images and ideas sidled up to each other, seemed to seduce one another in ways I could not or did not want to explain. So that when I wrote affinity in a piece of critical prose, maybe, what I, was maybe I was trying to point elsewhere to a realm of the unthought, unthinkable, something unkillable by attitudes or arguments. Not a question of beauty or quality or taste, other supposedly eternal aesthetic values, something fleeting in fact, affinities don't all or always last. In the end, and for reasons above as well as others to come, something a little bit stupid. I've been writing about images for about 20 years, finding affinities rather than deploying any kind of expertise because I'm no art historian. Still, it had felt like an education, a second training in the image after my first in the word. For a long time, I'd been saying or writing affinity, but also dreaming, never exactly conceiving, a way of thinking about art, about objects and images that belonged to artists, including the contemporary artists, whose studios I might visit and find myself staring at the pictures, not their own pictures, that they had stuck to the wall. Books and artefacts on their shelves. I had thought in passing about how these, or the smartphone photographs and notes app reading lists that the artists sent me afterwards, how they sat alongside each other in more or less oblique relations, and then, when I came to write up the encounter, my encounter with the work and with the artist, wouldn't easily translate into the language of influence subject matter research. Wouldn't do so, that is, if the art was of any worth. Sometimes everything explained itself too well. How to describe, as a writer, the relation it seemed these artists had with their chosen and not chosen, what's the word? Talismans? Tastes? Sympathies? Familiars? Superstitions? Affinities? Mm, that's really wonderful. And um, I think what's particularly beautiful about this introduction is that it is an introduction to the idea that affinity, it, by the end of the book, you still don't really define what affinity means to you because it means so many things. So um, was this realisation of the connections that uh, emerged were in fact affinities? How did that come about? So because you'd already written some of these essays and then you wrote them when you decided that the book would be affinities. So what was the evolution of them all coming together and becoming the book affinities? Um, we were just not planning our conversation, but just kind of vaguely touching on what we might say um, mm. outside a moment ago. And you said, the thing about these 10 essays on affinity, Brian, is that they're all over the place, um, which you meant in nice the nicest it. possible yeah. <laughs> uh, fashion. Yeah. And I suppose this book, um, a little bit more than the last two, and I, I do kind of think about it, as I, I think you said, as the third in a sort of trilogy um, mm. with the book about essays, essayism, and a book about sentences, suppose a sentence. And this one is a little more of um, an essay collection. It's a little more of a kind of miscellany um, than, than those books. And I suppose they, it comes together in, in, in two ways in my mind. The, the first comes out of those first two books. I realized um, 
after having written the sentence book. So um, my partner who's here is, is also a writer. And after I'd written Suppose a Sentence, one day I was saying to myself and to the world and to her, what are these books about? I'm actually not sure. You know, in the way that one does when you've finished a book, you don't really know what mm -hmm. it is that, that you've done. And she said, quite rightly, um, surely they're about affinity. Mm. And I realized two things. First, that I had been totally overusing this word. And in fact, I now realize I just looked up a couple of freeze pieces from years ago. There's an essay on Helen Martin from about a decade ago that, that you and your colleagues gave the title um, Helen Martin's Intimate Affinities. Yeah. So I was already over deploying this, this word. And so I started to wonder what I meant by it. And I guess the thing that came to mind was exactly what I tried to describe in those mm. opening um, pages. It's that experience as a writer or as, a, as an art critic. Mm. When you visit, especially when you visit an artist's studio, and maybe you know the work intimately, maybe you don't, and you're kind of feeling your way around the work, but also mm. the person. Maybe you've met the person before, but makes a, a lot of the time not. So you have this encounter, and there's a kind of moment or I've experienced this moment so many times where thankfully, if things are working, if the conversation is working, you break through that sort of sense that what you should be talking about is intention and influence and research um, and expertise. And you find yourself staring at the things that they have in the around them in mm. the studio. Um, and the, it seemed to me that this word affinity perfectly described that thing where the artist is working surrounded by images, postcards, scraps, mm. objects, bits of text. And these things are, constellation is such a cliched word for mm. this, but it, it, it's, it's a kind of pattern, unpatterned pattern. And it seemed to me that that was something I had felt my way around, but never described. Mm. Um, but it was something that I had found myself talking about with artists and other writers, that there was something that we couldn't quite put our fingers on in terms of how we related to other people's work. Um, and I thought, how would you describe that? How, how could you begin to, to put that in a book? And so the thing I'm trying to describe in those opening pages is, I thought I could write a really, really stupid book in which I just stared kind of dumbly, like an idiot, <laughs> at various artworks and, and tried to describe something. But I realized quite quickly that actually I wanted to write about people I had already written about mm. and works I'd already written about. And so it became partly a kind of question of putting um, some pieces, some essays that were fully formed alongside thing, thoughts that were really not formed. Mm. So the book kind of came together probably more organically than than most of the things mm. I've written. Does that make some mm. some sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in other words, it is kind of all over the place. Mm. Yeah. In, a, in a good way. <laughs> um, and you talk about the history of the word affinity, and um, it was used, I think you write, to mean an attraction of opposites between chemical elements. And having a very unscientific brain, I don't even really know what that means. But um, And then you mention in his elective affinities, um, Goethe used the idea to think about the orbits and collisions of love. And so um, how did the uh, 
the evolution of the word itself affect your thinking? Because in a sense, that's what an artwork does as well, doesn't it? Or a piece of writing, it evolves, its meanings change with context. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm not a scholar of Goethe um, or of the elective affinities, still less of the, the kind of immensely complex kind of philosophical and, uh, and scientific um, history that kind of... Mm. There's a, you can kind of tunnel back from that novel th through the history of chemistry um, and philosophical ideas about attraction and the attraction of, uh, of opposites. What, what mm. kind of struck me as soon as I started to go into that material was this real ambiguity in the history. Um, and all of this is you know, in the OED, um, mm. uh, in the history of that word, because on the one hand, it describes historically relationships of kinship, of blood. Mm. Um, to have an affinity means to actually be kind of physically, organically connected mm. to something or or more, more often to somebody. Mm. Um, but it also means historically relationships that are not organic, not of blood, but are about um, the law, mm. you know, to, to be affianced, you know, to, to, mm. to be connected formally through ritual, through decision, um, but also through attraction. And so it's such a kind of ambiguous term um, it has something to do with a kind of formality and it has something to do with the absolute absence of that and I suppose mm. that that seemed to me kind of uh, a productive way to think about not only about artworks but about how you write about these mm. things because you're always coming to them partly with a sense of um, perhaps not of expertise but of you know I'm going to do the research um, uh, I'm, I'm going to take the time to look as carefully as possible, organize that looking. You know, it happens mm. in time. It happens in a particular space. Um, it partly has to do with language. Maybe you talk to the artist. You do the reading, right? Mm. You do the research. Um, and you come to the writing with, um, in other words, bristling with intentions. Mm. And at the same time, something escapes all of that. Or if mm. you're doing it properly, some, mm. something escapes all of that. And something unpredictable happens. And I guess that sense um, that affinity is, is a kind of intentional and formal relationship. And at mm. the same time, um, it's this unpredictable and organic and kind of fluid mm. um, and mutable uh, process mm. that just somehow seemed like it was a way of describing maybe a way of describing art and maybe there's, there's some of the uh the images that, that that will relate to that in a minute but also a way of describing writing mm. or my experience of writing mm. could you elaborate on that a little your experience of writing um that, maybe maybe <laughs> um i suppose writing about artworks mm. writing about things right mm. writing about images writing about mm. objects I think that in, in some way, the writing about images and specifically about photographs, mm. which is the, the thing that 20 years ago you, you first allowed me to do. And eventually you and your colleagues allowed me to write about painting, which was kind of astonishing. <laughs> but mostly I've written about photography um, mm. and, and about film and video. Um, and writing about images is for me has been like a kind of training in how you write about anything about the world mm. about life mm. about things about bodies about places about buildings about experience 
And I guess it's always for me that that sense that um, what I'm, no matter how much knowledge, um, and for me it's it's frequently not much knowledge, because I think I say somewhere uh, in the book that mostly when I write about contemporary art or about art in general, I'm not an art historian. I tend to write short things. I tend to write essays and articles and reviews. And so the experience is kind of short-lived. Mm. Um, maybe we'll come to this later, but I, I describe criticism uh, uh, following Oscar Wilde. Um, uh, why not? Um, as a kind of mood or a sort of huff. You know, you, mm. you work yourself into a mood with the mm. thing and you work through it and you come out the, the other side. So it's it's a short process and, and often it's a matter of, could be days, it could be weeks. If you're lucky, it might be months to work on uh, on a piece. And no matter how much research you've done, no matter how much knowledge you're bringing, um, I'm always looking for this kind of moment where the thing starts to kind of fray around the edges, you know. Um, it starts to get kind of blurred. Um, and that's the moment where I, I have this kind of cockeyed theory of uh, that's entirely private when I'm writing that's to do with what I think of as the guiding metaphor. And in my head, that's what I've called it since I was probably about 18. Mm. Um, and writing like undergrad essays. There is this thing, maybe other writers have this, I have no idea. But for me, um, even if I know what I'm doing, there's always this moment where I'm bored, I'm potentially bored by knowing what I'm doing. And I have to find this other thing that is called in my head, probably in capital letters, the guiding metaphor. And if I can find the guiding metaphor, it sounds really stupid, doesn't it? No, it then doesn't. Everything will simultaneously kind of fall apart mm. and and come together. And I'll, I'll be able, instead of um, making an argument mm. or telling a story about the thing I'm writing about, I'll be able instead to conjure this metaphor on the uh, on the page, to describe the thing in other terms. Mm. And frequently the metaphor feels crazy. You know, you think, no, that, that image doesn't look, that, that portrait of whoever in a photograph doesn't mm. look like a strange blob of ectoplasm from the late 19th century. It doesn't, but somehow it does, and that's how I'm going to describe mm. it. And that's the kind of risk with the guiding metaphor, which is now what we're calling it, I suppose, um, is that it might be crazy. Um, it, you might be totally wrong and you might at that point also totally lose your reader because your reader might be unwilling to follow you into this sense that the object mm. or the image that you're describing is also this other strange thing that's kind of weirdly mutable and mm. mobile. So this is my experience of writing. Mm. Um, it's at least when it's exciting, when it when it feels like it's working, is that having found that metaphor, you then have to do something mm. with do it. Do you sometimes find the metaphor, but then you don't put it in the writing? Yes. So it's just there as a secret guide? Yeah. Like those meditation yeah. words you used to have to buy. What were they? Remember that? I don't remember no. that. No, no. <laughs> I remember there was a phase of it where people would bought, buy the word that they secretly could say to themselves. Oh, wow. That okay. would make themselves. Anyway, that's, that's, that's another life. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, but 
I mean, it's interesting, this idea of sort of fracturing and fragments and secret guides, because um, throughout the book, you're, you're often drawn to images that are uh, created when vision is altered, like be it through a migraine or um, a, a telescope or a camera or a film lens. So you're often drawn to these images that don't reflect the world back as a particularly clear cut or, or, or rational yeah. place. Um, and I think on page 23, you describe this as a new way of seeing or framing the world. And and so there's a very moving essay about when you first get a migraine when you're in high school and bizarrely mm -hmm. your teacher allows you to ride your bike home even though you can <laughs> hardly yeah. see. Yeah. But um, thank you, Mr. Roach. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but you you know it was a terrifying experience, but it was also an extraordinary experience because it jolted you into a new way of perceiving and experiencing the world. And so was this um, was this experience of a migraine. Was it the beginning, in a sense, of you becoming a writer, do you think? I mean, is That's that too fantastic. much of a leap? It would be amazing if it was, wouldn't it? It would be, it would be wonderful. Um, I was sitting, I'm, I was, what, maybe 15, 15 or 16, and I was sitting in a science class, and um, I was staring at the textbook in front of me, and suddenly I couldn't see the page. Um, and page, uh, people who have, have migraines are, will, will know exactly what I'm describing. Um, and there was this vague blob kind of floating about and slowly over the course of about 20 minutes it, it kind of crystallized it formed into a shape a zigzag shape which is called a scintillating scotoma and the scintillating scotoma sometimes pulses in, in your field of, uh, of vision and it dances about it's absolutely extraordinary um and i thought i was going blind and so yeah i told mr roach i, I think i'm going blind I, th I think I should probably go home. On your bike. Um, and he yeah. put, put, put me on my bike and, and I cycled home. And halfway home, um, uh, an old man with a cane um, started to walk into the blob as, as I was heading towards him. And I thought, I really, really hope that he comes out the other side. Um, and, and he did. And I got home and I said to my mother, I was trying to say I have this terrible headache because the headache had started as I, uh, as I was cycling. And I said to my mother... I have a really dreadful grenade, and I had forgotten the word headache. Um, and I went to bed, and I lay there just having these amazing kind of sort of language dreams. I don't mm. know what I I just remember that there was a kind of voice going on. Um, and then the, the image stuff kind of fades, and the, the, the pain kicks mm. in, and then you start having these really strange trains of, of thought. The more I talk about it, maybe it was, maybe it was the moment um, of becoming something, a writer. But you are completely right. There is a strand in the book that is to do with exactly this. this these moments where um, the clarity disappears and mm. the thing in front of you, the object that is supposed to be making sense, turns into something else, turns into this either kind of mm. blurry or uh, jagged and mutable and sort of dancing thing um and that runs it's it's obviously in the uh, the essay about migraines um it's in the essay about julia margaret cameron the great victorian photographer who was admired and despised um uh, during her lifetime for for the blurredness the vagueness uh of uh, her images um it's there where else is it 
Um, it's in it's, Rinko Kawachi's uh, yeah, contemporary It's in Francesca Woodman. It's in Francesca Woodman, That's this horrible. amazing photograph that she um, took when she was 13. Yeah, and Dora um, Maar And well. Dora Maar. Yeah. John Stesico, I mean, that's yeah. more of the cutting and, and pasting, and Hannah Herc, of course, yeah. so the distorted image. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you talk about um, sort of uh, these monstrous transformations of faces and bodies in, in these works as, in some ways, the beginning of modernity as well. There's something, and I'd never thought of this before, I'd never read it before, that that modernity is somehow related to this um, uh disarray of the senses. I guess that's Rambo, Arthur Rambo, you know, him, mm -hmm. him talking about yeah. the, the importance of the um, the senses becoming um, out of whack in, in terms of creativity. And so, um, yeah, there's something here you go, yeah, you say, um, shall I read out this little bit? Um, a surprising number of the essays seem to be about images, oh, sorry, um, becoming otherwise, you, just, you say, in disguises and persona, assumed by Claude Cahoon and Francesca Woodman. Um, and this, yeah, this suggestion of an interest in blurriness and imprecision um, is really related to modernity. Yeah, so sorry, I'm just repeating myself. Could you could you elaborate on that, this idea of mm. the blur and modernity? And actually, maybe it's a good moment for you to read um, something about Loie Fuller, because um, I don't know if you all know Loie Fuller, but she was this extraordinary dancer in the early part of the 20th century who... Um, anyway, you can describe it. You've read, written about her. <laughs> well, you know, but you know about her too, um, and yeah. I'm sure lots of people um, yeah. know about. Uh, we Loie need a Fuller. film now, yeah. But Loie um, yeah. Fuller has kind of um, returned to a strange kind of prominence um, mm. uh, in recent years. I first discovered her, um, I think, at the Pompidou in that room. I don't know if this display exists in the same uh, form these days. Um, that was mostly kind of modernism and, and, mm. and surrealism and it's kind of dominated by um uh a display of andre breton's uh studio um and it's all very male and it's all very predictable mm. and off in a corner was this tiny monitor showing this figure in this black and white film hand tinted uh in color of a body but was it a body mm. it seemed to be uh, an abstract shape dancing, disporting itself. And it's Loie Fuller, except it's not Loie Fuller, it's one of Loie Fuller's dancers around 1896 in a costume um, with silks and these big, probably bamboo kind of wands that the fabric is attached to, making these extraordinary shapes. And it's called mm. uh, the Serpentine Dance. Um, and it it's one of the dances that Fuller and, uh, and her dancers did in which the body turns into something else. Mm. It turns into a bird, a snake, an aquatic creature, um, a ray of light. Mm. At one point, Fuller contacted Marie Curie and said, I want to make a dance that's about radium. Can you <laughs> give me a sample of radium? And Marie Curie writes back, you are mad. You cannot do this. <laughs> but she made the dance anyway, mm. but she performs radium. Mm. She becomes radium. She becomes kind of pure mm. energy. Um, she's become... There's films about her now. There's documentaries and, uh, and a, at least a couple of, uh, of feature uh, movies. Um, and uh, what three, no four, maybe five years ago, um, she was uh, a major. There's, there's a whole section um, of Taylor Swift's 2018 
tour um, devoted to a kind of like re-performance, reinterpretation of, uh, of Louis Fuller's uh, dance. Um, I'll read the bit, shall I? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, there are 13 photographs of Fuller taken around 1900 by an English photographer with the pleasing name of Samuel Joshua Beckett. Fuller is posed in a park or manicured grounds. She disports herself on the lawn with trees and footpath in the background. What forms, what designs does she act out? In two of the pictures, Fuller trails her acreage of white drapery behind her as she advances into the foreground with arms and wooden or metal wands outstretched. In another image, she flings herself away from us while looking at the camera over her shoulder grinning. She looks like a primitive aircraft coming apart, a soft, disintegrated Blerio monoplane. And in one picture, she's quite gone. The fabric truly engulfs her like flames, like petals, like a wild idea into which the real Lolo has at last been subsumed. Despite all these versions of her, Fuller's visual legacy is hard to reconstruct. As a dancer, her reputation was quickly eclipsed by those of Isidore, Isadora Duncan and Nijinsky. Cinema, which has partly preserved her for us, also did a better job than she could of staging the pageant of pure movement. Her innovations in stage lighting were important, but were further developed without her name attached. Still, it's impossible to look at Beckett's photographs her frothing, roiling fabrics and miraculous metamorphoses suddenly stilled in the sunshine, and not to imagine a submerged sort of fullerism at work over the past century. It survives every time cinema, for example, is seduced by matter in motion. In the several astonishing seconds it takes in Max Reinhardt's um, 1935 film of A Midsummer Night's Dream, the several astonishing seconds it takes Oberon's starry cape to appear on screen, or the gleaming extruded swathes of colour in Alain René's film about plastics manufacture, The Song of Styrene, in 19, 1958. Fuller's costumes, predictably, were among the modernist motifs invoked by Lady Gaga and, as, as we know, Taylor Swift. But it is Fuller's vanishing into atmosphere and effect that now seems most contemporary. She might be a precursor to all artists who are enthralled to projected light and colour. She died in 1928, having performed for the last time the year before in London. Late in life, she was surrounded by her troupe, known as the Fullerettes and looked after by her partner, the heiress, Gabby Bloch. Isadora Duncan recalled visiting Fuller in Berlin and finding the inveterate hypochondriac fretted over by many beautiful young women. In 1924, the Louvre put on an exhibition about her. It seems the performances she devised became more stark and austere in her last decade. The Fullerettes mimicked a silver sea to the strains of Claude Debussy's La Mer. There was a dance that consisted of no more than a row of silver tassels held by her girls and lit by a single horizontal shaft. 
she had a photograph of the surface of the moon blown up and projected onto her costume. She became a pure white screen. She succumbed to pneumonia aged 65, but the rumour in Paris was that she burned to death and that her last words had been, the light, the light. It's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> really... The light, the light. Yeah. It, and when we were talking about this before, we mentioned Turner, you know, that the last words Turner apparently said was, the sun is God. God, we've really got to work on the thought of our last lines. Uh, um, yeah. One of the yeah. things I realised very, very late, um, just after the mm. finished copies of the book um, uh, arrived, was yes. that there's maybe half a dozen pieces in here in which people's last words are really amazing. Right. Um, Julia Margaret Cameron, when mm. she died, is supposed to have died looking out the window at the sunshine. And, and, and she looks out. The sun is streaming in and Julia Margaret Cameron, having made, having spent her life making these extraordinary mm. images, says, beautiful and dies. <laughs> wow. <laughs> none of it, probably none of it is true. Probably all of it Can you remember any of the other ones? Because they're really good. I don't recall. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah they're, they're really good. Again, so anyway, in answer to your question, yes, yes there's something to do with um, modernism and blurring. Mm. Um, and it's really, really obvious in photography in, uh, in that period. But probably it goes back um, through the 19th century. It's probably there, you know, in, in De Quincey. The, the, early on mm. in the book, there's, a, there's an essay about De Quincey's um, writing mm. about uh, astronomy. Mm. Um, and he's writing about uh, a nebula. And what, what attracts him is the idea that this thing in the, that, mm. that's being described and studied um, uh, and depicted not in photography at that point, but in uh, drawings and, and engravings, is also kind of escaping the scientific apparatus mm. of the mm. telescope and becoming this kind of gaseous, mm. uh, you know, again, sort of mutable, blurred, mm. monstrous thing, mm. I guess. Mm. So if, we're, if you're thinking about blurring and indistinction and, and modernism, mm. I think that's kind of where it starts in the 1820s. Yeah. And actually, of course, with people like Turner or the Impressionists as well, you know, the outrage that they mm. evinced because their work wasn't seen to be clear. So this idea of yeah. clarity. Um, you know, you talk about a, such a breathtaking array of subjects in the book, but you return again and again to photography, of course. And, um, and you write about photographs that hold you because they would not resolve and continue to seem excessive, obscure or even idiotic. And I was really curious about this and also about the fact that you've written about photography more than any other medium, I think mm. it would be fair to say. And even your memoir is called The Dark Room. And so could you elaborate a bit on this, both the attraction that you feel towards photography and and what you mean by this images that are excessive, obscure and idiotic? Um, God, I think so. I mean, let's start with with idiotic. Um <laughs> It's something I was trying to work out because I, I, I sort of imagined we might talk about this. Mm. Um, and I was trying the other day to, to, to think, what is that thing? I'm sort of looking through the book now, trying mm. to find like what, what would be an yeah. image um, that, although they're very small, I can't sort of wave them about at yeah. people, but trying to figure out what, what would be a good example um, mm. of this. It's, it's more, it's less about particular images maybe, um, that we can describe right now and more about a kind of moment that happens when mm -hmm. I'm looking at photographs. And, you know, you, you think back, I, I 
thought a lot about photography before I ever wrote about photography because mm. my um, education is in literature and mm. my particular education is in literary theory, really. Mm. Um, and so Bart and Benjamin, you know, when I was uh, a student, were my, my big heroes. And you think about that moment in, um, in Bart, in Camera Lucida, where he talks about famously about the the punctum, the thing that kind of mm. holds him. Um, and I think the thing I'm describing is absolutely not that. <laughs> mm. It's something else. Um, it's it's not the kind of detail that draws you in and then kind of loses you yeah. or disperses your uh, attention. It's something else. It's something about those aspects of photography that um, produce monsters, visual mm. monsters, and blur bl blurredness. My speech mm. is becoming blurred as I try to describe <laughs> the blurredness. Um, blur is one version of it, but I think that there are others. It's something to do with a kind of excess. Mm. Um, and the excess might be um it might be a shape, it might be mm. a form. That's I think what I mean when I'm talking about mm. like, you know, the guiding metaphor, mm. back to our friend, the guiding metaphor, mm. um, is that those moments where, where things start to look like things they absolutely cannot mm. be and should not mm. be. And and sometimes that might be, you know, it's a form. It's like, you know, Francesca Woodman's arm, aged mm. 13, extending into the foreground mm. of that extraordinary photograph. And you can't see that actually the blurred hand has you know the cable release mm. uh, uh, in her hand. That's how she's taking the photograph. It just becomes this kind of strange, monstrous uh, blob in the foreground. Mm. Um, so sometimes it's that I think that I that, that I'm thinking about or talking about or trying to kind of wrestle with. But it might equally be just a kind of texture. Mm. Um, the, there's a long essay here about William Eggleston, and for me. I love William Eggleston. Who doesn't love William Eggleston? Mm. Um, but the most exciting thing for me, and it was a really late discovery, is his video, his black and white mm. video work, Stranded in Canton from the, from the early 1970s, which starts with this absolutely extraordinary scene of his children, his, his son and daughter, um, coming out of a doorway. It's obviously really early in the morning. Mm. Eggleston, who's clearly been up all night, has woken the children up. They're really distressed mm. um, and, they're, and they're just like yawning and sort of stretching and, and really do not want to be there in front of his, you know, Sony mm. porta pack at uh, 5 a.m. or whatever it is. But there's something about the texture of that image mm. that's absolutely extraordinary. And mm. I could watch that video quite mm. apart from, you know, the romance of William Eggleston, the out, the, the kind of outlaw photographer, mm. you know, the, the, the drugginess and the booziness mm. and the, and the kind of demi-monde mm. of that work. If people know it, it's a really amazing portrait um, mm. of a kind of underground Memphis mm. artistic and rock and roll kind of uh, life and, and milieu. But much more than that, there, there's like this amazing kind of ghostly quality about the entire, whatever it is, two and a half hours uh, of that work. So I think sometimes the thing that, you know, uh, as you said, kind of holds my attention is just how do you account for, for mm. that texture? Mm. Partly it's technological, it's to do, it's to do with the, the medium, but it's not only that, it's, it's something, something else. Yeah. 
Yeah. And um, so many of, I mean, all of the artists and writers and thinkers you mentioned throughout the book, um, they are all exploring this um, almost unidentifiable quality, you know, that you dig into. And in, at, at the very, um, in your acknowledgements, you mention, you mention um, Chris Marker. And of course, you've had, there are so many influences threading in and out of your book, but I know Chris Marker is a particularly big one. And obviously Chris Marker was a great sort of archaeologist of the image and, and the power of it, like in La Jete, where it's all stills and then the woman blinks and it's one of the most powerful blinks you could ever experience or, or watch. And you say in your acknowledgements that you thank um, Chris Marker and then you rather enigmatically include a quote after his name. We all know that Irishmen have strange connections with the untold and the untouchable. Mm -hmm. Elaborate. Elaborate. <laughs> God. I mean, yeah, you're right. I was going to put an essay about Chris Marker um, in this book, and then I thought, I, I can't, because I think that, although I've written about him a lot, mm. um, I don't think I've ever said anything that wasn't kind of obvious about Marker. Mm. And so I, I, I took it out in, uh, in the end. Um, that quote, um, God, about 15 years ago, I was um, uh, reviewing a book, uh, one of the very late books of Marker's photographs, and I can't remember the title of this book now, other people may remember it. It's the book where it's entirely made of photos of the faces of young people in protests and demonstrations on Paris streets. It's absolutely amazing. Um, and I got a copy of the book and I wrote to, it must have been MIT Press who published mm. it, and I said, is there any chance, Marker would then have been in his mid to late 80s, I said, is there any chance that he could be interviewed? Mm. Um, and weirdly, they sent me his personal email address. Mm. Um, and so I wrote straight away to, to Chris Marker, Christ, and he wrote back <laughs> like five minutes later, and he said, there is no way that I can submit to an interview. I'm far too busy. I have numerous projects um, that I'm working mm. on. However, if you ask me a question now, I might answer. And Jesus. so I asked him all of these questions. <laughs> and he was being really kind of cagey mm. he, and, and sort of abrupt in, in, in his answers. And for some reason, I thought, um, if he knows that I'm Irish, he might be more amenable. Um, because this, I'm sorry, people, but th this sometimes happens. Yeah. Right? If you reveal that you are Irish, then your yeah. interview subject is somehow yeah. more amenable. I don't know what that is. And suddenly, Chris Marker was emailing me and telling me about like flying to Cuba in the mm. 1950s and passing through Shannon Airport mm. and drinking Irish coffees and having an mm. amazing time. And uh, we had this brief exchange. It went on for a few days. And I then became one of these people who was on Chris mm. Marker's email list. And he would send you these amazing like photo montages that he'd made. Wow. It was the era of, um, it was just, yeah, it was still the era of uh, of the Afghanistan and, mm. uh, and Iraq wars. And he would send these amazing um, satirical things about George W. Mm. Bush and so on. Um, and when my review appeared, sorry, this is a long story about no, Chris great. Marker, but yeah. um, when my review appeared, he emailed me. I had, I had put a quote in it, Ezra Pound's uh, poem in a station of the Metro, um, the apparition of these faces in the crowd, petals on a wet black bow. And Marker suddenly emailed me and said he had been planning to use that poem as an epigraph right. for the book. 
but he decided against it because it was too pretentious. <laughs> and he said, but thankfully now you have closed the circle. And then he said, we all know wow. that Irish people have whatever that yes. quote is. So that's, wow. so he's, he's lurking um, as you have. Yeah very well divined. He's lurking behind the entire mm. book because he's not just somebody who's um, who was capable of, um, you know, he, he's like a sort of, he's like a 17th century mm. kind of curioso, you know. He, mm. He's surrounded by these images that, that are, he's patterning in these extraordinary ways. But the thing that he's really attentive to mm. is the, the strange medium in between them, you know, mm. the mystery in between them, I think. Mm. That's what that moment is in, uh, in mm. La Jete, right? It's mm. like the, the blinking, suddenly it moves, mm. right? Mm. Well, this is a book of great mysteries, and I've just realised it's 10 too, so we're meant to start asking up for, opening up for questions. But I, I, at one point, I think we've run out of time, but I was going to read the first lines of um, the 10 essays of affinities because I love yeah. the way that you um, – I'll just really do it quickly. Um, so the very first affinity one – I found myself frequently using the word affinity and wondered what I meant by it. Second affinity. I had been overusing the word affinity and quite forgotten the places where I'd read it in recent years. Then the third affinity. Um, that one's about William Gass. So I won't quote that one because it goes on a bit. It's wonderful. It goes on a bit. <laughs> Thank you, um, Thank you, Jess. Affinity four. Um, uh, William Gass went on, not you. Um, he did. He affinity did. four, a relation of blood or marriage, a kind of love or attraction, a species of similitude, alike entities as they move en masse. All of these meanings of affinity, more or less vernacular in nature, are present in the scientific use of the term. Beautiful. Really good, that one. Um, affinity five, Goethe's elective affinities, as its translator R.J. Hollingdale points out, is an example of a narrative form that has no close equivalent in English either in language or literature. Um, affinity six, um, I'll side with what I can't understand in Brahms's phrase. I'll side with the possible rottenness of an object I might one day love. Um, that's really not great. me, that's Wayne. That's Wayne Kestenbach. Uh, affinity seven, affinity, so you know. affinity insults the academy. Great first sentence. Um, affinity eight, how to describe the matter or medium of affinity. Um Affinity nine, a constant, a constant suspicion, unchanged since I was a student, that nothing I write pursues an argument or is built to convince. Um, affinity ten, and then this becomes a partial list of things that you haven't included in the rest of the book, and I think it's the most beautiful, beautiful list, actually. And so then I went back and looked at the very first sentence so the very first sentences, as I've just said, I found myself frequently using the word affinity and wondered what I meant by it. And your very last sentence, which I think is also very beautiful, but I think it's a sort of really nice bookend, is the flight of pigeons from the palace. Mm -hmm. And that's it. I think that's that, really that useful. Is it. That's that, a really great last sentence. Again, that's not me. And, that, that's Donald Bartelme. Oh, well, it, it works very well. <laughs> And so um, I think that uh, what I'm struggling to say is that it's very hard to sum this book up because it is so full of riches and allusions and references and images and ideas and memoirs and pieces of culture. So anyway, I've done a hopeless job. What you have to do is read the book and then you'll know. 
So now we have, if anyone has any questions. Uh, another term that comes up more than once is mood. Um, I think in, in yeah. Affinity 9, um, mm. when you've worried about whether your writing goes away from reason, it's you seem to worry that it goes towards mood. Mm. So I guess just in that light, I'm wondering, firstly, what mood means to you, maybe particularly about writing about art, and secondly, why you feel might feel suspicious of it. Mm. Um, suspicious yeah, of it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, interesting. Um, maybe suspicious of it because... I mean, we've talked a lot about, you know, the attractions of um, of blurred and monstrous mm. and uh, unpredictable mm. forms and states of mind or being and so on. But my experience writing is also always a kind of, I don't know, I suppose it's the sort of editorial, critical superego that, that, that wants you to make sense, right? And, and so the idea at the same time that writing anything is just kind of getting yourself getting yourself in the mood, right, to write, but also getting yourself in a mood with the thing that you're you're writing about. Mm. And you just kind of pursue that on, until you've done the other thing, fulfilled the responsibility. And the two the, the two things are always kind of working together, but in some kind of tension. The mood stuff comes partly um, from Wilde, um, from The Critic as Artist, this amazing essay um, in the form of a kind of mock philosophical uh, dialogue, um, which is most famous for the line that goes something like, God, I've forgotten it now. Do you remember? It's, mm -hmm. the, it's, the, it's the stuff about um, how... Enti it's entirely gone about how criticism is oh it's coming back to me um it's the anti matthew arnold line um the role the task of the critic is to see the ob the object as in itself it really is not that's oscar wilde's uh, position but there's this whole other theory in that essay that is about mood and about how critical writing is a mood and the thing about a mood is you get into it, but you also get out of it. And once you've got out of it, it's gone. It's disappeared. And I love that idea. I mean, obviously, it's, it's a Wildean notion that, that, that it, critical writing is, is a, an ephemeral mm. form. And I suppose that, that's the thing with, with mood is that it's, and this, I suppose, is the experience, is that it's totally absorbing while you're in it. But there's also a deadline, you know, it's partly practical, there's also a deadline, but that's also essential to the whole thing is that you work your way through the mood and then you're done because you have to make this thing. Mm -hmm. Does that make some, some sense? It's just, it's the mood is one part of, of, of this scenario, this scene and controlling the mood, you know, putting a frame around the mood, putting a shape on it, putting, giving it an end point that's that's kind of mm. partly the the struggle i suppose mm. in any kind of writing mm. um any other questions S sorry i'm still sort of thinking through the question as i'm about to mm -hmm. ask um i guess i just wonder having not read the book and just going off what affinity sounds like to me i wonder did you think much about how intimacy works with affinity and when you go through these moods of mm. affiliation mm. um how how are you balancing and navigating your critical work and then your 
like natural love or kind of I, I don't know how, how is that something you're navigating when you're writing about how you affiliate and how much is that impressing on your love for said writer or f- photograph yeah and vice versa does that make sense it makes total sense i th- i think that that's that's kind of exactly i mean that that's partly that's also partly what the mood is it's a mood of infatuation um and uh and a kind of love and I was thinking about this the other day. I, I just did the first sort of um, interview for a magazine about uh, about this book, and um, somebody asked kind of similar question. And I, I was thinking about a piece that I wrote last year, or at least this is like my my most recent experience of how far this kind of sometimes goes, um, where I was writing about the music of Nico. Um, it, it was for um, I don't know the New Yorker, I think, for the New Yorker online or something. And I spent months and months and months just listening to Nico. <laughs> and I realized that um, <laughs> after about three months of just listening to Nico, that I never wanted to listen to anything <laughs> ever again. Um, but that if I were to survive, I would have to stop listening to Nico. Um, and I guess that's um, that's when you know it's really working, right? It is is that you're so trapped inside this relationship with this? Mm. Not it's not just a body of work, and I suppose this is something that we haven't really uh, talked about. A lot of these pieces are, um, in a way, sort of surprisingly to me, biographical. Mm. And actually, I really, really like the challenge when you're writing about um, uh, an artist. The same with 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 writers to try and describe to um, an audience that doesn't necessarily know the work at all, right? So some of these pieces are written for like contexts where you know the readers probably are coming fresh to the work. So you actually have to say quite a lot about the life as well. You're trying to give a, a kind of context. And in some like specialist contexts, in some, you know, art magazines and journals, mm. you, you absolutely might not do that at all, mm. though you might, you do it wonderfully for example but a lot of art critics you know that's not kind of Mm. on the uh uh, it's not part of the the task and so I think some of that intimacy comes with you know when I was younger um I and kind of very caught up in the kind of theoretical notion that somehow the life was irrelevant to to the work Mm. I would have despised some of the things that I now find myself just sort of mooning over, you know, when I, when I think about somebody's work. Um, and now that seems absolutely essential, that mm. sort of intimacy, um, as you're de- describing it. Um, but then it's also an int- intimacy that comes to an end. And sometimes it's an intimacy with dead people. Mm. And that's so fascinating mm. you know when you think about it as as writers and critics mm. people who write about not just contemporary work but who write mm. about like historical uh work write about an artist or a filmmaker or a writer or whatever that sense that you're also communing sidling up to mm. somehow trying to kind of seduce the dead is really peculiar when when you start to mm. to think about it um, so there isn't there isn't a sort of answer in a way to your question other than to, to sort of say, yeah, all of that is kind of going on in there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Hi. Um, so there's an amazing bit in one of the essays where you're a young academic and you give a paper and then some other bright young academic sticks his hand up and says, 
is this not just one correspondence after another without an argument? And I recognise the sort of nightmare of that that feeling, but I wondered, is there a fear attached to that of what you think that the affinity approach might not be able to contain? Or do you think it's such a fluid form that you can contain whatever you want inside it? Yeah, um, good question. Um, yes, so for those who haven't uh, read the book, it's a very brief kind of uh, uh, section in one, in one of the essays on affinity where um, I was... I was 25 and I was um, giving my first ever academic paper in, fr in front of a, um, uh, an audience um, at the university where I was doing my, my PhD. And I described what I thought was this relationship between an essay by, God, who was it by? Um, Siegfried Krakauer about, about photography um, and bits of Proust and bits of Virginia Woolf and bits of my own memory of like my family and my parents who, were, who had died when I was quite young. And I set all of these things in what I thought was this kind of beautiful pattern. And then this guy put his hand up. He perfectly nice person, but he put his hand up and he said, isn't this just a series of correspondences? You've just set these things alongside each other. Where is an argument? Where is a kind of hierarchy? Where is history? Um, where are the connections? And I guess you're absolutely right. There, there is this kind of fear. Um, and I think it's a justified fear, that a critical approach that is mostly based on a kind of um, rapture um, is not adequate, but it may be what some of us have, if you see what I mean, you know. Um, and I suppose I'm, I think I also, I think you quoted this, uh, Jennifer, earlier, um, that I'm always afraid that I'm not in fact capable of making arguments in writing. Um, I'm not really capable of telling stories, and I'm not capable of making arguments. Um, what does that leave you with? Not much, except the kind of hunch that might be if you set one thing alongside another, the things will make an argument. The things mm. will make, but it's it's out of your control to some degree. Um, I mean, that's what Susan Sontag was talking about in Against Interpretation, wasn't she? She would have come to your defence, I think. Would she? Yes. I'm not, I'm not sure. Yes. She might have looked sternly upon me. No, because but, you allow the does, objects themselves yeah, But she to does speak. say something really interesting in her diaries. She says that she's not interested or she's not capable. And I think that, you mm. know, if, if you're not capable, it's a good idea to be not interested, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you play to your, you play to your mm. weaknesses. Um, uh, she says she's not interested in convincing a reader. Um, she's interested, or she puts her essays into the world not to convince, but to have an effect. Mm. And I suppose that's, that's the thing. That's like the difference that... I mean, this is this is a way, in a way, a kind of self-consoling mm. thing to say because you know Sontag agrees with us. Great, um, but you know, Bart says somewhere. I think I think it's in um, the the sort of autobiography. Um, he says um, to substitute metaphor for the concept to write, and and that notion that that somehow instead of mounting the argument, you present the image. I mean, in writing, um, this isn't an answer to your question in the sense of like, mm. how do you deal with the fact of all the other stuff that this kind of writing is incapable of doing, except maybe to say, I'm very happy that there are people who are more theoretical or more polemical 
or more historical, historically minded critics, but you find the thing that you can do. And mm. if you're lucky, you find that the thing that you can do is a thing that you can pursue. And, and you know, you can, you can recognize that it's a limitation, mm. but um, kind of mine the, the thin seam that you've got, if that makes sense. Thank you so much. Um, you've said so many incredibly interesting things that, this evening and, and on the page. So thank you for sharing all of that with everyone in the room. Um, my question is really to do with something that you were saying about how you come to the work with a, with a, with a metaphor, with an idea, and how something else emerges through process. And then the question that I'm trying to tease out in real time, and I apologize for that, is between that and where you touched on not wanting to write about market because that was obvious and that you might lose and the idea of wanting, of possibly losing your reader um, in another set of thoughts. Yeah. But, and it's that part that I was really interested in. Is that something you're seeking to engage with, the possibility that you might lose your reader? And is that the hook or the moment where you realize this might have a value for me as my biography or something for, if I fully commit to it? Don't know how much sense that made. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm grasping the question properly. Is it interesting um, to you if, if the, uh, as a writer, if you think that you might lose us unless you fully go through that? Hmm. Um, might be projecting and it, and it might be nothing. I wondered, I wondered about the biographical suggestions that you, you said how, um, the image was writing about the image was, was, was good training for writing about yeah. life. Yeah. And that was a real hook for me. Are you, are you examining your own life, the, your own excess or, or obscure moments and thinking that might lose a reader? But I think this is really interesting. Um, one of the things that we haven't touched on, actually, is the fact that there's a, there's a couple of essays in, in this, and there's probably several pieces that do this more subtly, um, that are kind of directly more or less kind of directly personal or uh, autobiographical. And one of them is an essay about um, an aunt of mine uh, who spent a lot of her life um, in a kind of dispute with her next door neighbors about boundaries. And she spent decades photographing the boundaries in her, in her, her back and front garden. It's a very she was a very difficult person, and it's also a very kind of difficult life to to think about what she was reduced to in the uh, in this period. And that piece, alongside a couple of other uh, sort of more personal essays, to use kind of weak phrase, are are in there, I suppose, to acknowledge the partly to acknowledge the fact that even in the pieces that are obviously not about me are obviously not risking very much in that in, ter in terms of a kind of first person or a kind of uh, autobiographical intimacy um but it's nonetheless there and i think i don't know do you do do you think i th i think it sort of surfaces here and there um so i think that i am probably often afraid of losing the reader 
by being a bit too intimate or embarrassing or embarrassing myself. I think I'm always, as a writer, um, slightly anxious um, about loss of control. Um, and that in itself is a limitation that I think I've learned to live with because there are also these moments where I can allow something else, something messier and something more personal to kind of drift in. And I think that it's really important or it has been important to me to kind of own up to the, the contradictions and the limitations in your own writing because that's the style, that's the way you do stuff. I'm never going to be the person who just gives you the personal story and I'm never going to be the person who gives you just the absolutely rational, critical, you know, um, intention, intended and controlled version of things. Um, I'm always going to be kind of playing one thing against the other. Is that sort of answering? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I love the dynamic in your book between the personal and the less personal. You know, I think that it's like a piece of music that you have these moments of real intimacy and then you have these sort of intellectual explosions and you, then you have something cooler and more speculative. You know, I think in terms of the, the rhythm of the book, the... Um, the episodes, the personal episodes mm -hmm. are brilliant. Like, I loved the essay about your aunt. I thought it was extraordinary. Snipping the heads off the roses and then accusing the neighbour. Amazing. But, Look what the yeah. bastards have done. Yeah. 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 An, it's an amazing yeah. essay. Yeah. And also it gives a greater resonance to your thoughts, say, on photography when you've talked about the misuse of photography by your aunt, for example, you know. It's, or use, you know, it's like a personal project that lasted yeah. uh, Well, that was accusatory, decades. I guess. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the end of that piece, which some people have read, actually, and, and thought was, was kind of um, snide or, mm. you know, overly kind of harsh or judgmental. Um, but surely anybody who has, you know, families <laughs> knows what it's like mm. to find those people frustrating and impossible. But it, the point of it at the end is to say, she's just like me, mm. you know? She just keeps staring at things mm. and, and trying to control them mm. by taking photographs of them and mm. organizing these things. Um, and so it's, it's partly a kind of essay about um, a sort of familial inheritance mm. of um, dysfunctional attention, you know? Um, and sometimes that produces the mm. horror of like living out your last few mm. decades, like absolutely paranoid. And sometimes it means you get to write stuff, you mm. know, you get to write books. Mm. Um, so. Because again, this is coming out slightly uninformed and I haven't had the luxury of reading your book yet. Um, I just wanted to finish the last two points, say that I actually found it delightful to almost as a reader be given the permission to think in a way that was empathetic and allowed for personal reactions to a work of art. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of critical writing does not allow. Um, my actual question, though, was thinking about the past mm -hmm. um, and understanding your approach to writing about something that's not in the present and whether you saw there's there's a certain nature of art historical writing which is about applying critical thought applying logical 
argument to sort of create this artificial impression of the conditions in which artwork was was created and yeah. then appreciated. And I just wondered how much room for the sort of involuntary, the empathetic side of affinity that you describe, you felt there was in art historical writing and whether you tried it or, you know, how, whether you'd been able to take yourself to it. Um, I think, I think it's an immensely complex uh, question um, that has been, I mean, only partly answered by art historians themselves in Mm -hmm. thinking about what happened. I mean, obviously I have nothing but, you know, the greatest respect for art historians and, and, and for, you know, the the different iterations of that historically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really interested in the fact that many art historians have thought hard about what happens when you look at the past and think you're seeing something from now, <laughs> right? Or, well, the, 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 there is a whole body of work of the, thinking about, um, you know, I mean, Classically, in art history, it's a mistake to look at works, images, or objects from different periods and think that because you're seeing the same forms, you're seeing an affinity, you're seeing a likeness, you're seeing a a, a continuity. Um, Because those things, as you've said, um, arise at specific historical moments, they come out of particular contexts of making and of of understanding, of appreciating, uh, etc., that kind of anachronism, on the other hand, mm. is also totally essential to the moment where you look at something from the past. Um, and it's essential to how you look at the present, too. We, we only, mm. you know, those things are always playing, are always in, in some kind of violent conflict. Um, seeing an object or an image from the 1860s, let's say, with Julia Margaret Cameron, hmm. um, and seeing that it is not has nothing to do with Francesca Woodman. Its blurs are different blurs. And at the same time, knowing that it absolutely has something to do hmm. with Francesca Woodman. Um, so I think it's a point of like tension, and that tension never goes away. And the fact that you want the kind of mysterious connection between one point in time or history and another doesn't mean that you disrespect or ignore the historical specificity. If that is that just fudging the answer, it is in a way. Um, but I think that it's a constant kind of you know tension between those things. Jennifer Higgy, thank you. Brian Dillon, thank you thank so you. much. Thank, thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.